part of an exhibit called Rightfully Hers, American Women and the Vote, the National Archives displayed a large image of the first women's march. But signs referencing Trump were blurred to remove his name, including a poster reading, God Hates Trump. The National Archives initially stood by its decision to edit the photo, saying the changes were made, quote, so as not to engage in current political controversy, unquote. But last month, the National Archives reversed course and apologized. We'll return now to a historian who says this was only the latest example of, quote, a great and growing threat to our nation's capacity to protect and learn from history. Matthew Connolly is professor of history at Columbia University, principal investigator at History Lab. His recent piece for the New York Times headlined, Why You May Never Learn the Truth About ICE. It details how the National Archives is reportedly allowing millions of documents, including many related to immigrant rights, to be expunged. Professor Matthew Connolly, welcome to Democracy Now! Lay out what you found. Well, what I found is that the National Archives, um, which, you know, as a matter of business, in the normal practice of archiving our our nation's record. They have to decide what records are going to be temporary and which ones they need to preserve permanently. And normally these kinds of documents, they call them records retention schedules, are ones that almost nobody would actually read except maybe an archivist or an historian. But in this case it was fascinating because uh, what I found and what others have found is that records relating to the death, the sexual assault of undocumented immigrants have been designated as temporary. In other words, these were records they decided had to be deleted after sometimes three years, five years, 10, or at most 25 years in this case. So there was a big outcry. Um, a lot of people, in fact, tens of thousands of people spoke up in protest. Dozens of members of Congress and the Senate also voiced objections about this. But in December, the archivist of the United States, David Ferriero, announced that they were gonna go ahead anyway. They'd made some changes, but in fact, huge numbers of records relating to shoddy medical care, the civil rights violations of these undocumented immigrants, all these records are gonna to start to be destroyed later this year. Well, is there any precedent to this? I mean, who has been in charge? Who's made the decisions here? Do you know of any incident uh, uh, prior to the Trump administration where the National Archives were altered uh, in this way? So, to, in fairness, the National Archives has a tough job because, in effect, they have to predict the future. They have to try to figure out what it is that future historians, journalists, citizens are going to want to know about the past. But in the past, it was typically uh, agencies, departments like the CIA, the Pentagon, uh, that would destroy what I think everyone could recognize are vitally important records here and now. Um, so, for example, the CIA has a long history of destroying records of covert operations, mind control experiments, and most recently and notoriously the torture videos. Similarly, the Pentagon destroyed all of the records of the deliberations of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And in fact, decided so to... So those kinds of documents would normally be in the National Archives? Well, one would hope, right? Because under the Federal Records Act, these are historically significant documents that should have been preserved. And it was a violation of federal law that these records were destroyed. So normally we trust the National Archives to be the watchdog to prevent other parts of the government uh, from destroying the historical record. But unfortunately, that's not been happening. So <clears throat> you write... The Department of Interior and the National Archives have decided to delete files on endangered species, offshore drilling inspections, the safety of drinking water. You also talk about, specifically when we're talking about ICE, um, that um, 
Last month, they announced that ICE could go ahead and start destroying records from Trump's first year, including the detainees' complaints about civil rights violations and shoddy medical care. Is this different from previous administrations? It, it is. Uh, I would say that under this administration, things have gone much further, much faster. I, I think perhaps the best example of that is how Donald Trump tears up his own papers in tiny little pieces. Now, in this case, the National Archives tried to do the right thing. They sent staff to the White House to scotch tape those papers back together again. I'm not even kidding. So what happened? Say that again. They, they went to the White House to scotch tape those pieces of paper back together again. These are our federal employees having to fish out of the trash pieces of paper that Donald Trump had left there rather than leaving a record for the rest of us. And so they scotch taped those records back together. So what happened to those people? They were fired. They were terminated. So and who do they work for? They, they work for the U.S. National Archives. They work for all of us, right? And, and this is what happened to them when they tried to stop this sort of thing. So this administration has gone further than I think any other administration before. You have to go back to the Nixon White House to see anything like it. And in fact, that's the whole reason why we have a Presidential Records Act to prevent Watergate-style cover-ups. So I think more of us need to start paying attention because in effect, this White House is being allowed to destroy evidence about things that we may never know about. You also talk about the whole issue of the Trump administration um, around declassification. You tweeted yesterday, State Department historians have been thwarted by the Pentagon block from declassifying Cold War documents and at the CIA as well. That's right. So the State Department under, uh, again, federal law, an act of Congress requires the State Department to produce a record of American foreign relations. And they have been doing this since the Civil War. So for more than 150 years, State Department historians who are professionally trained, highly competent, and completely responsible have been trying to give the rest of us a record of what the government does in our name. Sometimes these, and typically these volumes, they come out 30, 40, sometimes even 50 years after the fact because it takes that long to get the CIA and the Pentagon and the others to allow these documents to be released. But what's happened in most recent years is that the Pentagon has blocked the State Department from allowing the release of Pentagon documents, hundreds of these documents. These documents date all the way back to the 1970s and 80s. And they're claiming that even now it's, it's dangerous to release them to the public. So um, give us your final thoughts. We have 20 seconds around what people can do, what can historians do. So a lot of what's happening at the National Archives is happening because they are being starved of resources. They have a smaller budget now than they had back in 2008. That budget has been cut every year for the last three years. So if you actually care about having a court of history that can render some judgment about what's happening in our time, then you have to let your congressmen and your senators know that you care about the past and you want to preserve it. Do you think the National Archives will even keep information about President Trump being impeached? You know, I, I think that the people there want to do the right thing. They just need our help in doing it. Well, we want to thank you, Matthew Connolly, Professor of History at Columbia University, Principal Investigator at the History Lab, and we'll link to your piece, Why You May Never Learn the Truth About ICE. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is accepting applications for a paid year-long news production fellowship here in New York City studio. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Shea. Thanks so much. I really enjoy uh, free speech television. It's all sort of brand new to me. I haven't seen um, it before. And the things that you show, the programming, are informative and really honest. And I really appreciate it. And I think that a lot more people should be aware of this because our country is heading for some serious turmoil. There's a lot of people living with their head in the sand. And um, you guys are great down there. I would definitely like to get on your mailing list and be supportive of free speech television and keep doing the good work and uh, fight the good fight. And uh, I'm all for it 100%.
Hi, I'm Peter. There's nothing I love more than sharing vegetables with my friends. Come on in. Help yourself to anything. That's why we give our food the utmost respect it deserves. Did you know? free speech TV station that uh, allows people to literally uh, show um, really hitting the values of the people. I want y'all just to hear some stuff and um that's going on besides the regular news. Uh, this is uh, free speech TV. They don't take no corporate sponsors. None of that because to get corporate sponsors, you got to do and say what you want. What they want you to say or they just not going to sponsor you. So I think it's it's a sellout. Uh, I had two sponsors, but... Um, we was going to support the radio station real good. But to tell me that my content will offend um, other communities that may find some of my information um, offensive. I was like, um, life? You saying my, my content about life and how to deal with life and what's going on in life and what's happening with people in life and there's something they have to deal with that's offensive? Or is you talking about me talking about the Lord? Okay. Well, thank you. So, uh, I'm not going to bow down to the to the to the altar of Baal of this world. I'm just not doing it. I'm not selling myself out to an idol. God is the only one that I, I I worship and guess what? That's all I'm gonna do. So um the all the injustice and all the lies and everything that's going on in this world the deception that's covering the people's eyes so you really can't see what's going on behind the scene. Please. Okay. Um, 
We're going to spend most of the time with that, of course. Uh, Dane is a fellow white-collar criminal defense lawyer like myself, and Ashley, in addition to her uh, now life as a white-collar criminal defense lawyer with uh, David Gerger, Sammy Khalil, and Matt Hennessy's firm, she is a former DOJ prosecutor. I am. Uh, you, were, you were here on the in Southern District on the Healthcare Fraud Task Force. That's right. Um, and so I think I want to I wanna kind of use that because we've seen a lot of task force around the country. We've seen the Healthcare Fraud Task Force. We saw the Enron Task Force years mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. It's always a task force going around. <laughs> I think they're kind of similar to the special counsel investigation. So I want to get your thoughts on that. Obviously, we're going we're gonna to delve deep. It's 488 pages. There's no way we're going to cover it all. But this is the first time we've actually got to talk about it in some detail on this show. And uh, I'm glad I could bring on two experienced federal lawyers to talk about it with me. And really what I don't want to do is I don't want to give the misimpression here. Look, we're not political pundits, okay? We're not going to be opining about whether what, what Congress's next steps will be. We might, we might guess, but we're in no way political pundits. We're actual practicing lawyers. And so, you know, we're going to give you a view of what it's like from our point of view, okay? What we see every day and how this differs from not just what you know, Dana and I have been doing for years in the private practice, but what Ashley saw on the government side prior to getting into private practice in criminal defense. And th there's a lot of things that I think a lot of people don't understand, and there's a lot of misconceptions out there. And hopefully we can clear that up tonight. If you want to get on the conversation, you can hit us up on Twitter at HCCLA underscore TV, or you can call into the show, 713-807-1794 is the number. We we welcome any and all comments, and uh, you know, even if you have political comments and you want to make your voice known, by all means, we may not be able to address them because, again, we're not political pundits. But uh, let's just jump right into it, guys. I mean, this is, we've, this is, to me, this is not how most criminal investigations are handled in our world. At all. <laughs> At all. It, it is such an anomaly um, that, as I remarked recently to some federal prosecutors that I had a case with um, and we were trying to negotiate a resolution and, and I thought the price point for resolution was way too high. I, I stopped and I said, look guys, I'm just going to be honest with you. The problem that I have in resolving this case with you guys is the, the public and what the public is seeing right now, and that includes my client and several other clients, is they see that your price point is way too high compared to what's going on with the special counsel's investigation. That whether or not it's true or not, I'm just telling you what the perception is. The perception that's out there from the media, and I, and I think this report kind of lays out, we were talking a little bit about before the show, but if you just listen to the media and the media reports, you thought Michael Flynn was a traitor and treasoner. You thought, you know, Papadopoulos was the same thing. You thought all of this stuff, and here these are, here these guys are, committing these horrific crimes against the country and they're getting away with slaps on the wrist. I mean, Flynn's plea agreement, when it came out, I talked about it on the show, I'd never seen anything like that. I, I'd never seen a plea agreement with a agreed guideline range so low. Well, he hasn't been sentenced yet, right? Right. Yeah, and I think initially the judge rejected it. He did have some hesitation about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, but uh, I, I've never seen an agreed guideline range that came out at zero to six months. Yeah, well, th there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of things about this case that are unique and not mm -hmm. that we don't see every day. 
Um, you started with one of them um, by noting that Ashley was on a, on a task force, and, and I want to start the show off by disagreeing with you, but you said there were some similarities between a task force and a special prosecutor, and while there are, yeah. um, there's a lot of differences, too, so I, I, I'd like to spend a little time on, on the differences, because a task force typically looks at a, a very big and serious problem and then dedicates resource to it, and they can do a lot of good. Um, a special prosecutor or an independent prosecutor, when there used to be one, um, don't look at a, usually a really big problem, but more so specific people, and then they throw their resources at that. And in my experience, which has mostly been observing from here to Washington, is that task force are really good at, 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 at solving problems, and special prosecutions, to me, tend to result in making more criminals than they find. Sure, <laughs> right? They create yeah. them in the process which is uh, significantly what's happened here, right? People yeah. lie in the process, people obstruct, uh, and you end up making more criminals than existed before your investigation started. How, how do you feel, Ashley, about the fact that, because I talked to a former agent uh, this week who was just disgusted with the fact that the, the, the use of 1,001 counts and obstruction of justice uh, to, to really try and leverage people in such a significant investigation. Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel about that, having been a former DOJ prosecutor? It's interesting that a former agent would say that to you, um, because when I was a prosecutor, it was often the agents that were trying to get me to charge a 1001 for folks that were, and 1001 for the folks at home as a, as a false statement charge. For anyone that spoke to an FBI agent or a federal um, a federal agent and misrepresented something or lied or wasn't completely forthcoming about something. And I'll tell you, uh, for a really aggressive prosecutor, you could probably charge everyone, almost everyone that talks to an agent or talks to you with a 1001 charge, which yeah. is a felony up to five years statutory max. Um, and so I think, to me, I think um, it happens a lot. I think this is an example of what goes on all around the country all the time because it's such an easy charge to make. And you're right, it can be used as leverage um, against folks to maybe cooperate with investigation. Sometimes it's used to allow folks to plead to a lesser charge when there may be evidence for a, of a greater charge. Um, but it shows you the sheer power that federal prosecutors have because there are so many charges that can be brought for such what I think the public would think are little things that someone's that someone's doing. Um, I think in this case, in the mother investigation, it's hard to know whether there were more egregious charges that they just didn't charge because the individuals were cooperating. Right, and, and you know, the U.S. Attorney's Manual says that they're supposed to bring the highest charges possible. That's right. And and in this case, you know, they they didn't do that. I mean, clearly they just. With, with Flynn and Papadopoulos, they brought menial charges. Um, and we'll never know, I don't think. And I don't think we really get a good explanation of whether or not. I mean, it seems on its face that had Flynn and Papadopoulos just shut the hell up, they would have never been charged, right? I think that's right. I mean, that's the risk you take when you're facing, as all of our clients do, the decision to cooperate or not cooperate. Um, you know, there's this human nature to feel like, well, if I don't, cooperate, i.e. if I don't talk, they're going to think I'm guilty. 
I always tell them they think you're guilty anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so um, you're not you going to dissuade them of that notion either. Right. And so um, there's cooperate, there's don't cooperate, and then there's the worst option of all, which is cooperate the wrong way, which mm-hmm. people yeah. did in this case too. Um, that's the that's the worst thing you can do. Um, get rid of your right to a trial. Get rid of your defense. Lay down on your sword, and then not reap the benefits of cooperating right. in the end. But but before you get too far off, yeah. um, <clears throat> you know. Um, you said you know a similarity between the cases you know this power to charge people with a thousand and one and obstruction and and perjury and things like that um i will tell you though in this case if you look at the number of people who are looked at um or key people who are looked at and the number of thousand and one charges that's that's you applied those across the nation to every investigation we would three quarters of us would be in jail, right? Oh, absolutely. It would be absurd. Because the thing is, it's all in the eye of the beholder, right? And it's all in the eye of the agent of whether or not you lied to them. Right. Oh, and, and the prosecutor as well. Um, but I'll, tell you, I'll say this. I think that's what shows the difference and the uniqueness about this particular high-profile uh, investigation and case. Um, there really was nothing like it in history. And I think the pressure and the attention it, that's the difference between something like this and like a task force. Mm-hmm. Because with all the eyes on the special counsel and on this team of prosecutors, they have to produce. Well, I agree with you on that. But, you know, you were on the healthcare fraud task force, mm-hmm. which has been a huge problem. I mean, the. The, the task force or healthcare fraud? Well, yeah, the, <laughs> no, the healthcare fraud. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I actually don't think there has been. Um, I mean, I, I thought there was significant abuses in the Enron task force, um, but I do not think that the healthcare fraud task force has been abusive. Quite contrary. I mean, my experience was that you could always have upfront, frank discussions. I mean, and, and in fact, some some of the prosecutors on the task force would come to me at the very front and say, "Hey, you know, I, I know we took this charge, and you weren't involved in the very beginning," and they were very upfront. You know. We, we really didn't have a good rapport with the previous lawyer. We think there may be some advice of counsel defense here, but we never really got that far with the other lawyer. Please mm-hmm. come talk to us. Mm-hmm. Kind of so mm-hmm. I, I've never really seen any kind of abuses or you know games on the healthcare fraud task force. What I will say though is I, I, I do think that the healthcare fraud task force is, is, was really aggressive in going after very high sentences. Um, and, and did, w- was not really willing. So even though they might be willing to talk to you and say, hey, was there a defense here? If you got past that, I mean, it was, we're not giving you a, well, a five-year captain plea deal or anything like that. Well, right. Well, as you mentioned earlier, the justice manual requires prosecutors mm-hmm. to go after the, um, the highest charge. Right. And oftentimes it's healthcare fraud, which is a 10-year stat max or the healthcare fraud conspiracy, or, you know, money laundering with 20 years. Um, And the sentencing guidelines in those cases... They're rough. They're rough, because they go according to the loss amounts, and in these healthcare fraud cases, you have multi, multi multi-million dollar loss to the Medicare program and to other federal programs. Um, And that's what oftentimes determines the sentences, not necessarily the prosecutors. Yeah, and I mean... Unlike this case, I mean, they could have charged money laundering if they wanted to. Uh, they could have charged wire fraud uh, if they wanted to. 
Um, but they didn't. They chose for Papadopoulos and Flynn to bring the, the false statement counts right from the beginning. Well, and I think that actually that may have been a benefit to them. I agree. If, if they had the evidence to charge them with money laundering, a 20-year stat max felony, um, and they came over early to cooperate um, and to be forthcoming, um, then a five-year cap with a 1,001 um, seems like a great deal. It, it's really hard because we don't know the whole story, right? I mean, we got a lot of redactions mm -hmm. in here. Um, for obvious reasons, I mean, there's still there's an and, and that's what that's what drives me so freaking crazy is we need to see the whole report. Well, right. wait a second. There's there's still an active grand jury investigation right. going on. You still got Roger Stone, who like him or not, he's still got a right to a fair trial. You know, and if you disclose the whole thing, it's it's not hard to figure out where in the report Roger Stone is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you start looking down the names, it's blacked out, ongoing matter. I mean, mm -hmm. it would be prejudicial to him. And as a defense attorney, the last thing I would want is this report coming out when my client still has the right to a, a, a fair and impartial jury trial. Right. I, 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 the, the redaction issue should be non-controversial. Non exactly. Um, uh, the, the buckets of information that are redacted in there are kind of par for the course, right? Right. Grand jury materials, which we never get to see. No. Right? No. Um, and, um, you know, personal information and ongoing investigations. Um, so that's just, I mean, those are statutes, not even just policy, that, that really shouldn't be controversial. Um, the interesting thing to me, though, about DOJ policy and kind of the, the, the content and release of the report um, is uh, this comment by Mueller that, you know, he, he did not exonerate the president. Um, after many, many pages of specific instances that could be read to um, be damning. Sure. Um, because there's a DOJ policy um, to not publicly accuse someone who you're not going to indict. Um, I kind of have a question here about whether that DOJ policy was followed or whether it was seen as not applicable um, or knowingly disregarded. But don't you think, I mean, what, I, I had a prosecutor, you know, the story I was telling you uh, about how I was trying to negotiate it, one of the responses was, that I got from a local prosecutor here was, well, it's different when you're providing information about the President of the United States. You tend to get better deals when it's a matter of national security. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I get that. I understand your point. But at the same time, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, yeah, but in some regards, you know, is it that they're, I mean, to, and I'm, I'm not trying to be a defender of everything the President has done or, you know, validate what he has said in any way at all, but you have to, in some regards, look at it and, 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 and honestly take a look at whether or not this was an investigation that, that was funneled in one direction, and that was to try and get the president, and at the end of the day, what do we have? We have this, um, and they, they, it's, it's almost as if they hit kind of a, not a brick wall, but, you know, a, a wall that they really couldn't get past. I don't think there's any question that the, the goal of this investigation was to find something on Trump and the Trump campaign. Right. I mean, it was all been set out in the, the, the title. Right. <laughs> um, I, I think that's pretty remarkable, right? Um, I don't know many, I don't know that many people and companies and organizations that could undergo a two-year microscope of 2,800 subpoenas and 500 interviews and $30 million and, um, and come up just squeaky clean, which as to Russian 
if not collusion, conspiracy, whatever you want to call it, um, wasn't there. And well, wait a minute. I don't think anybody came out of this squeaky clean. No. Um, and in fact, I think one, I think there was there was clear evidence that Russia interfered in our elections. I mean, that's that is widely accepted in all law enforcement communities. Yeah, and um, also kind of known before the investigation started. That's right. Well, that's what that's what initiated the investigation. So I don't think it was necessarily started to get Trump, President Trump, but there was evidence that that Russia interfered in our elections um, to support candidate Trump, um, and there was a question. Uh, and some evidence about whether there was some uh, coordination or an agreement between the campaign and uh, the Russians to to do that. I think the investigation then turned um, towards President Trump once there were actions by him to um, interfere with the special counsel or interfere um, with um, their obstructions uh, investigation. Yeah, I mean, they did start to, I mean, we've got, of course, the the situation where he's alleged to have told uh, White House counsel to fire the special counsel um, and then lie about what I told you to do. Um, So, yeah, I mean, look, I I agree with you. I don't think think it comes off squeaky clean at all. And not to mention the fact that they said, I mean, I think there was a clear distinction, right, on the volume one dealing with the conspiracy with Russians. They said they found no evidence of, or they did not find sufficient evidence of a conspiracy. Correct. Right? Second part of the report that dealt with the obstruction, they said uh, if we had found that there were no, there was not sufficient evidence, we would have said that. So, yeah. They didn't say that. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, um, wait, 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 I've got it pulled up right here. You know, they. Um, and the only reason that they didn't conclude that um, that he that the president did not obstruct justice was because they couldn't accuse him of a crime, yeah. given that he's a sitting president. This was this was one of the paragraphs that I had marked. The concerns about the fairness of such a determination would be heightened in the case of a sitting president, and this is you know of course regarding whether or not there was obstruction of justice, and um, they they talk about citing to uh, as you know, what constitutes federal offense. Uh, of a sitting president, where, the, where a federal prosecutor's accusation of a crime, even in an internal report, could carry consequences that extend beyond the realm of criminal justice. Um, you know, they talk about the difficulty of preserving a sealed indictment, that it would likely get out right. and harm the presidency and the president's term, the stigma that could come with it. Um, and, you know, the, they, they talked about how the fact that to accuse a president of a crime, uh, essentially, in, in this manner where they could not bring an indictment and allow him to clear his name, clear his name mm-hmm. through the court systems, mm-hmm. through the right to a speedy trial, through the right to confront and compel, you know, confront witnesses and compel witnesses on him, his behalf. That's where they went in that analysis on this. Well, look, I mean, that's not a foreign concept, right? It's right. a name. It's due process. It's in the Constitution. So, I mean, that that is, and that's the DOJ policy that I referred to before. I mean, the, the par for the course is you do not publicly accuse an individual who you're not going to charge with a crime. Yeah. I don't know of an exception letting the special counsel off the hook for that. Um, so, in my view, um, it's kind of a remarkable statement to say, um, 
hey, hey, by the way, had we found anything exonerating him, we would have let you know, and, and we didn't find any. Because to me, your job, right, Robert Mueller's a prosecutor. Prosecutor's job is to bring charges or decline charges. And it really stops there, to me. So um, once they decided internally, if that's what they determined, that you can't charge the president, why list all of these instances and then say, we Here, have an exonerate? Here's why I think, and we have to keep this in the context that this is a very special circumstance. Right. Um, and I think they talked about the fact that the public interests um, weighed in favor of them outlining this. But not only that, this whole report is an outline for Congress. Absolutely. They, I think they wanted to outline the steps they went through, the evidence that they gathered, because they didn't want to preempt the constitutional process for impeachment. They said, okay, we'll just let you know exactly what we did, how we did it, and what we have, so that Congress can do their job. Um, and because there is no other instance other than a sitting president where this would be relevant, I think they had to go to extraordinary matter, measures that usually, you're right, a prosecutor would never do that, would never say, um, oh, we would let you know if we can exonerate him, but we can't. Um, but I think because this is involving a sitting president of the United States, it had to be a very unique circumstance. Yeah, and I think the other thing too, we were talking before we went on the show about you know whether or not this, this concept of whether or not a president could even obstruct justice in this context. You know, I mean, does does he have the right to make these statements? You mean about the public statements that he made up right. to to Cohen and to yes. Flynn, right? And, and or or even going a step further, the statements that he makes to White House counsel. Um, mm. You know, I mean, he he's he's making he is the chief executive, right? And in mm. his role as the chief executive, correct me if I'm wrong, but he is the head of the Department of Justice. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think that goes to motive, right? It does. Um, I, it, it goes to motive. Yes, I think a president can obstruct justice. Yes, I think that public statements, just because they're public, doesn't mean that they aren't also satisfying the elements of obstruction of justice. It's all about your intent. And if there was a corrupt intent to interfere with an investigation, whether it be a, um, you know, a congressional hearing or a FBI investigation, I think that would be obstruction. Um, there's a reason why there's a separation of, of uh, the three branches of government here. Yeah. There's a reason why his counsel advised him, do not talk to DOJ about this investigation. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any question that a president can obstruct, right? I mean, I right. think if, if President Trump was being uh, investigated for something and there was evidence on his cell phone and he, you know, burned it, you know, that'd be obstruction. But in this context, I have real questions about the, the types of things that were listed in the Mueller report. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a number of problems there. One is a lot of them have to do with his constitutional executive authority, right? At the end of the day, um, it, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, um, you know, people in the executive branch, which includes the Justice Department, which includes even Mueller, um, they report to him. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I would worry about the precedent of going after people for um, doing things that you think their motive was bad, but but they actually have the authority, the absolute authority to do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then you have other issues like, um, you know, he didn't sit down and talk to him, um, which I think was one of his unquestionably wise wise things. Yeah. Um, but, but think about it this way. I mean, you know, your boss has the authority to fire you. 
But if their motive in firing you is because they don't like you because you're a woman or you're a man or you're whatever, that's their motive. That's behind their action. They had the authority to fire you. But it's illegal to do that for certain bases. Yeah. I, the, the, the other problem, though, is that the statute requires corrupt intent. Um, and a lot of what he did, um, he either did in public or he did in private and then told the public that he did it. And yeah, he so wasn't hiding it. It's, it's hard to do things. This is my, my own personal theory here. Um, it's hard to act corruptly in a public way, right? I, and, I and there are actually yeah. statutes like the bribery statutes that require corrupt intent that my theory is they cannot be violated unless done secretly, right? Because there's like a bribery statute that um, on its face would apply to like you tipping a waiter to get better service. Well, what makes it corrupt? Well, it's, it's when you, you do it secretly yeah. behind it, right? It's the only way to, to draw a distinction. So it, it, it's hard for me to accept that somebody that does things out in the open is, is acting corrupt. Let's, let's take your example. You said if he had, uh, someone has um, evidence on their phone that incriminates them, right? Um, and they're in front of a TV camera like this one, mm -hmm. and they bring their phone, and they have some pretenses as to why they're going to destroy their phone on camera for whatever reasons. Let's say they wanted to make a point. But their motive and their intent is, I gotta get rid of this evidence that's on my phone. Um, they did that in public. They destroyed their phone in public. But if their motive and intent is to destroy evidence in an investigation? Yeah, I think the difference in, in your example is that destroying it publicly would still destroy the information on the phone. Whereas what he was doing to try to get someone, you know, fire someone so that they wouldn't do something or wave a carrot in front of somebody in a party to get them to do, act a certain way. Once that becomes public, right, there's there's no deceit there. There's no trickery about what the person is doing and why they're doing it. So I think it's a little different than the public. I, I, I get that, but there's the element of, of, of obstruction. There's no element that requires it be, to be done in secret. It's just all about whether your intent yeah and it's a subjective question it, 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 honestly, i think it's hard i it think is. it's a really hard, difficult question because of the same points that you're making right now i think it's really hard to get into the mind of anyone i think it's a lot easier in your example to sit back if you were 12 people just watching uh -huh. right if you were if you were, if you were 12 people sitting over here on the other side of the studio and you took your cell phone out and destroyed it uh and you were just making statements I think it'd be a lot easier, if I'm on that jury, mm -hmm. to me, it's a lot easier to say, well, her actions were clearly an intent to destroy something versus, you know, what, what really was his intent? I mean, yeah. you're not hiding it from us. He's pretty, being pretty open and notorious about it, you know? It's a, it's a much tougher call, I think. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a factual determination, which is why we have jury trials in this country. Yeah, well, and it, it makes it even more uh, complicated because of, he's the president. Yeah. You know, he makes public statements all the time. Like, that's his job. But remember, our governor got in, uh, indicted for essentially making public statements that the, the Court of Appeals here eventually ruled that he had, a, he had a First Amendment right to do so. It was political speech, essentially. Um, and I wonder if some of these statements that he's made could potentially fall under that kind of protection. I mean, he is the chief executive, after all. Well, I, and I think it, that's why it says in the Mueller report that even without the Office of Legal Counsel opinion saying that you can't indict a sitting president, there's still going to be issues with the evidence. Yep. Those, these are still difficult questions. Um, there are still 
defenses. But I think, you know, why go through the analysis that they went through about whether they could keep an indictment sealed or not, or whether these other instances uh, would get out to the public? Why go through that if they did not think they had enough to actually indict? Well, I mean, I think they kind of had to justify their oxygen too, yeah. right? Well, I, I personally think the real answer is because they, it, it, there was a political motive to it, and I think yeah. they did want to give it to Congress and let Congress do what it thought it should, and I think what it thought it should do is impeach him. Because really, everything you've said I agree with, but if you're going to make that conclusion, why not just have one paragraph of volume two that says, we've decided that we can't charge a sitting president, and even if we could, there are issues with executive authority and the interplay between that and the obstruction statute. Yeah. And, and why, why then well, go through everything I, I after think, that? Well, one, because obviously Congress and impeachment, but two... But, that's the, but, the, but the special counsel's mission is not to lay a roadmap for an impeachment process for Congress. They have their own investigative well, authority. But, but there's the other, the other thing that they mentioned in the report is that they wanted to preserve the evidence such because they believe that a sitting president can be indicted once they're no longer president. And so if they think that there's sufficient evidence to indict but they just can't, then they wanted to preserve the evidence that they gathered during the investigation um, such that whoever down the line uh, will take it up then. Do you think, do you guys think, you know, for, for a long-standing history in this country we saw with Nixon, um, since since Nixon left and Ford pardoned him, there was just kind of this overall sense of, you know, the country. Yes, this was a bad episode. The country needs to move on with it. You know, mm -hmm. when 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 Clinton went through his impeachment, the Senate refused to convict him, and you know, it kind of went by the wayside. I think since Clinton, we've seen other countries um, who have not shied away from charging their leaders with criminal acts. Um, whereas the United States has been reticent to do so. Um, I mean, do you think we are kind of coming to a point where we may actually consider that, even once he leaves office, for, for, for crimes that he committed while in office? I hope not. So for as long as I've been old enough to really follow and care about politics, all I can say is that if we change that rule, um, it seems the political state of our country is that you know every president is going to be facing charges, right? Yeah. I mean, it was going to be President Bush for you know weapons of mass destruction yeah. and war crimes, and President Clinton for whatever it started as and ended with uh, with you know Monica Lewinsky, and um, but there were other things you know surrounding that presidency, and, and now it's it's bled over to you know um, President Trump. So I mean, it's not something I want to deal with every you know every presidential term. It seems like it'd be a bad precedent because when you read this, when you read the Mueller report, one of the takeaways I took from it was, well, crap, Obama sure knew this was going on. He didn't do anything about it. It's Obama knew what was going on? The interference in the election. I mean, theoretically, him knowing about, you know, a, a national security breach and not doing anything about it could that, I mean, I'm sure you could find a crime somewhere for, you know, at least misprison of a felony. Um, again, you know, it goes back to the fact that in, in the over 300,000 crimes that we have between Title 18, Title 8, Title 21, you know, the CFRs, I mean, we're probably doing, we're probably violating at least one of them right now being on this show. Yeah. Weren't there sanctions, though? There were. Um, but, but my point is, 
that it sets a dangerous precedent potentially because as you alluded to with bush um and the weapons of mass destruction what what does a president know when does he know it and what actions does he take uh you know when what does I mean, you could probably charge every cia agent and every every fbi agent with obstruction of justice for failing to turn in a, a you know a report on something um i it's I just think I agree with you, Dane. It, it, it potentially sets a bad precedent because we've always said that our country is one that just, you know, look, we recognize the bad behavior, but, you know, we, we as a country just need to kind of set it aside and move on. Um, but I kind of I feel that the tide may be changing a little bit on that. Well, we didn't set it aside and move on with, with Nixon. Uh, I mean, he resigned ultimately, but that's because I think everything was falling around him. Now, I'm not comparing Nixon yeah. to Trump. Um, and the <laughs> but I, I think we, you know, we're a country of laws, and um, no one is exempt in this country. And I think that's one of the things that makes uh, this country great is that um, while we have lots of issues with our legal system, um, it applies to everyone. Um, and so I do see the issues of um, we don't want this process to be corrupted in any way by political gain. We certainly don't want that. We don't want every tit for tat being a basis for uh, criminal charges against the president. No one has the appetite for that. Um, but at the same time, there has to be a line drawn where even the president of the United States is accountable um, to the laws of this country. Um, now, I really respect, actually, the conclusion that the, the mother team reached here in not finding um, or saying because they could not indict this president that they're not going to just put it out there just for political folly and that they respected the due process and the Constitution here. Um, I, I think that's a testament to our system in this country. Um, but to say in the future that, you know, there would not be conduct that would, uh, I think we would revisit that. Yeah. Um, I, I can't say that a president should always be above the law, even while they're in office. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on that. I mean, they, 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 everybody, everybody seems to hate him so much. Is <laughs> the thing. Not everybody. I mean, no, I, I agree. He's probably got. He's probably still hovering around fifty percent at least approval rating at this point. Um, and Lord knows, with as many people seem to be wanting to jump in the Democratic primary, his, his poll numbers may go up. <laughs> Who knows? Um, so are we better off with the Mueller report than we were when we started? I'm not sure. Um, I, I think from, I think it, uh, I, I think it has, I think it has caused problems because I think you are seeing even more of a, this notion, well, this divide of, of rich versus poor justice. Um, and I think this has kind of exacerbated that, um. You know, you made the statement that nobody is, is above the law and, and everybody is, is subject to it. But there just seems to be this huge groundswell that is, is really coming up in this country right now that, you know, the, the disparity between rich and poor in the justice system is that not everybody is treated the same. But that's true. Well, it, it is and it isn't. Um, I, I think what's left out is people think that, you know, white-collar uh, defendants who have money uh, get these slaps on the wrist, i.e. what Flynn gets, 
and and this, these are the kind of cases that get all the publicity, right? Um, like what's going on with the college admissions scandal. I mean, these these people are pleading early, and you know, getting four to six month recommendations or fifteen to twenty one. And I know you can't talk about it because neither can she. Uh, yeah. You know, but and, and, <laughs> true. Um, but I mean, and, and I'm, I'm not going to ask you to comment on this, but but I, I think that those are the cases that get the high publicity and get the most attention you know people tend to forget that jeff skilling got 20 years in prison to start people tend to forget jamie Olin's got 24 years in prison people forget or some of these healthcare fraud defendants right you know there was a sentence you know a couple of years ago for 75 years yes 80 years. Yes, the, Alan Stanford got 100 years in prison. Bernie Madoff got 150 years in prison. Um, so I, I just feel like the notion that that white-collar defendants are somehow uh, sentenced more lightly in this country because they have the means to afford lawyers or they have the means to pay restitution, I think at the state level, yes, that's that, that more often than not can be the case. But it completely ignores what happens at the federal level, where more often than not, I believe, white-collar defendants almost get disproportionately higher sentences um, than, than some people. And, I, and, and, and I'm talking about, and I don't want to get into it, I don't think it matters what the race is. Uh, I'm just talking about that I have seen a lot of judges who are much harsher in white-collar financial crime cases than, say, a drug conspiracy case. I've seen the opposite. Yeah. I've seen the opposite. Um, and I don't know what the data is. I'm sure we can look at the statistics of the Fifth Circuit or the, mm-hmm. the other Sentencing Commission's uh, statistics about that. Um, but I have seen cases when I was a prosecutor where judges could relate to white-collar defendants. They could see them as themselves or their neighbor or, um, or a friend. And... I've had judges actually say on the record that to a person like that, a federal sentence, jail time, it, they take it harder. It's the collateral consequence. Yeah, yeah. which, you know, that can be debated. Um, but I do think there is a misconception out there. I, again, I don't know the data, but I do think that um, if you look broad, at all of the cases in the country that are not non-white collar cases mm-hmm. and whether those folks get greater sentences. I mean, we talk about a woman that registered her child uh, using a, a wrong address yeah. to get to give her child in a better school district and sentenced to five years yeah. for something like that. She wasn't rich. She was black. I mean, so you can't tell. That was tell a state me. crime. That was a state crime. Yeah, right. I, I think the disparity, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to... The, the state system, I do think, has the huge disparity mm-hmm. um, and does not um, does not really uh, account for, you know, what we're talking about. I, I think that the state system is completely jacked up. There is a huge disparity between those who can afford counts and those who can't. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's a difference between the state and federal? <sighs> the guidelines. Mm-hmm. I, I think the guidelines have a lot to play with it because, um, one, one, I think there's the guidelines uh, that come into play. The, the fact that you don't have parole in, uh, in the federal system, so you're doing 85% of the sentence. I think the fact that what the U.S. Attorney's Manual, as you say, sets forth, we are to charge the highest offense um, and we are to ask for the highest sentence possible. You know, um, I, I think those kind of things 
are what drive it on the federal side. Plus, they don't they don't take every case. And so on the state side, you're trying to move cases. Mm-hmm. And, and in moving a case, if you've got a defendant who can come up with a substantial portion of the restitution, somebody who has the means to do so, I think it's a lot easier for a prosecutor to give in and say, yeah, I'll give them deferred adjudication and no jail time. And they can come up with, you know, yeah, okay, they stole $100,000, they can pay back 50 of it to start and pay back the rest over, over time. Yeah, let's put them on a 10-year deferred and, and let them go down the road. And the, and, the, and the judges don't really have a problem with it, you know, because, again, the, the state system is so overloaded, they're trying to move cases. And so I think that and, unlike the federal system, I don't think the resources are there to really properly... I, I think a lot of state court prosecutors, they don't want to touch white collar crime. It's a lot of paperwork. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we don't want to get into that. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, look, I agree with everything you guys said. Uh, the only thing I would add to it for your listeners is, um, you know, I, I think a way to consider looking at it, at least I won't tell them to look at it like this, is um, it's not that, you know, rich or white collar or white or whatever category you want to put people in the white collar arena um, are getting treated too leniently. It's that everybody else is getting treated too harshly or unfairly right um so um and i'm not saying i'm certain of that but it's just another perspective to have right which is um this is what happens when you have the means to put up an appropriate defense to get good counsel um sometimes you have the educational background to you know almost aid in your own defense and think through the process but a lot of people in a lot of different contexts don't don't have that um they should Right. And that's sure. what leads to, you know, you, you hear these stories where, oh, you know, um, Manafort gets four years and a, a kid that stole a pair of sneakers. Right. And Louisiana got 15 years. OK, well, what's wrong there is not Manafort getting four years. Yeah, it's right. The kid getting, it's the kid getting 15 years. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's not find ways to put Manafort in for, you know, to make sure he dies in prison. Right. Um, let's try to fix yeah, the other problem. And the pro- I agree with you, uh, Dane, on that. But the problem is, is that until we fix that system, you know, there are people who are getting disproportionately absolutely um, uh, punished and imprisoned. And so, what do you do in the stopgap? You know, does that kid keep getting 15 years while the, while you know everyone else? And I agree. Like I, I I'm a white collar defense attorney. I, yeah. I certainly don't want my clients to get they high sentences. Yeah. Yeah, but more harshly punished. Um, no, I wouldn't say that. I don't want anyone to be more harshly punished. But but there's something needs to happen. We can't just keep saying this as if you know it, it's just the way it is. Where people are spending their lives in prison unfairly yeah. too long. Here's an idea. $30 million for a special prosecution, maybe more public defenders. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the interesting thing, so I, I, I do, I take appointments on the federal side. I've been on the CJA panel for a long time, and I mean, um, you know, I, I got into a debate with somebody the other day about whether or not do you try your hardest on the cases that you're appointed on versus the cases you're retained on. And my point was, I, I give the same effort whether or not I'm appointed on a case Absolutely. or whether or not I'm, I'm retained on a case. The guy that pays me a large sum of money versus the person who I'm getting paid. You don't work hard on either of those. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just, I just, no, I, I mean, because for me, and, and, and I'm not saying every lawyer is like this, but I feel like as the lawyer, you should have enough pride in yourself that if you're going to take that court-appointed case, 
It's a reflection of you at the end of the day. You have to go up and make the arguments in front of the judge. You're the one who has to try the case. And if you don't have enough pride in yourself to say, I'm going to give it my all because this is my reputation on the line, this is how I perform, you know, then and, and, and you just don't have this innate, I'm here, my job is to help somebody. You know? Yeah, and as a criminal defense attorney, yes. we're not talking about money here. Right. We're not talking about contracts between businesses. Correct. I mean, we are we are all that as criminal defense lawyers, we are what stand between our clients and their livelihood, their liberty. Yeah. Um, uh, whether they are paying client or not. Well, and I'll give you a great example. Um, I I had a case, a healthcare fraud case that I was appointed to, uh, two and a half years ago, uh, and worked my butt off on the case and you know she was charged in a 29 count indictment plus a money laundering count and everything else at the end of the day we got really close to trial and i convinced the prosecutor to dismiss the indictment and let her plead to information on a tax count for filing one false tax return good for you 2012 and you know what she got she got probation in federal court that's a great result now she's a young black female um and she wasn't treated any any differently um I, I i don't think than anybody else i mean i gave her um the best representation possible we had an outstanding result and the judge you know didn't sentence her to jail time for it. um and, and i think if you don't have enough pride in yourself to make a fight like that for somebody don't take the case you know don't sign up for the panel don't go represent those people um, if you're not willing to fight as hard for the people that you get appointed on as the people that you retain for, that's where the problem lies, okay? And I know plenty of lawyers, you know, David Adler, all these guys who, who are straddle the line between both court-appointed and retained work, and they do hella jobs for their clients, yeah. you know? And um, so I, I, I just think this is, I think you can take this report and just kind of throw it out the window in terms of how the normal federal case operates. It's just, it's, it, it just, that's not how it works every day for us and our clients. It's just not. We don't, right. we don't get the benefit of a 488-page report, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, we get, some, we get, we get yeah. no question. We get what we get, but <laughs> sometimes but, we don't get it all. Yeah, but our clients typically also don't have to suffer through a special investigation that is dedicated at them. Um, so well, it, I, I, I guess it's just my point is um, but it's, it but cuts both ways and it right. cut one way harder than the other. But um, Well, it's all about perspective, right? I mean, you're the president of the United States. As, you know, kind of to, to paraphrase Puff Daddy and Biggie Smalls, more money, more problems. You know I mean? You, you get up to the, that that level you you're you're asking target for more problems you could get a target on your back versus you know it, but when you are an individual and you have the department of justice coming after you even on a regular prosecution it sure feels like a special prosecutor's coming after you okay let's we have to just kind of an element here though president trump didn't make it easier on himself no he didn't <laughs> but you know, i mean there were, there were a lot of our clients don't make it easier on themselves <laughs> Sometimes some of them don't follow all really makes it. <laughs> yeah. I will. I will say this. I, I think. Well, first let me ask: Is it? It may be a crime to suggest showing empathy to Donald Trump. Uh, you might get but, flogged and stoned in the streets. So I may. Yeah. I'm no supporter either. Um, but here's the empathy that I have for him: um, to endure a three-year or two-year investigation of that magnitude. 
um, when what you've been saying from day one is I didn't conspire with Russia. I don't think anybody from my campaign did. Um, and basically everybody calls BS, right? Um, the thing I empathize with is I think most people would have a desire to do everything they thought they could legally do to let that side of the story and to tell their story come out mm-hmm. and to, to write that ship. Um, so I kind of get that. Like these, some of these things that he did, I at least from a human nature perspective can understand him trying to do. I, I, I got to give you a hard time then because... I like it. I like because, hard times. <laughs> yes. As a, normal, as a normal Joe down the street, yeah, you're going to call your friend and try to figure out way... He is the president of the United States. That means something. You are no longer just Donald Trump. You represent our entire country. People that voted for you, people that didn't vote for you, you represent 200 plus years of history here. I mean, we have to, we have, he has to be held to a higher standard. And, and all I'm saying is that all of those things are true and he happened to be being accused of treason. So I just, I'm saying I get it, it's a desire to fight back. There were allegations, there was evidence, that needed to be followed up on. An investigation did that. They concluded that there was no evidence of conspiracy. Um, they did not conclude that there was no evidence of obstruction. Uh, so I, I think, you know, I, no one, no one forced him to run for president. No one forced any of this on him. This, this is par for the course here. Sure. Um, and I, you know, while I have a lot of empathy for a lot of people. Um, He's not one of them. You know, not in this circumstance. Not not in this circumstance. Because, one, he's still free. He's a free man with the powers of the president. Um, he is not being charged, at least right now. Um, he is still running for re-election. You know, he, he, he hasn't given up. He seems to like the job. He wants another, another round at it. Um, I just think... Um, I'm not sorry for Donald Trump. I I, I think that we owe it to the people of this country to figure out what was going on, to investigate it, and um, to spend the resources. $30 million in the big scheme of things is not a ton of money uh, for this country. No, it's not. I I think more, the hard part for me is, you know, he doesn't have, as, as this report said, he doesn't have the right to a speedy trial. He doesn't have the right to compel and confront witnesses and go through the normal process. So what is he left with? He kind of has to get on Twitter and get on the media and out his defense that way, right? And the, the hard part is, to me, what if they do charge him after he gets out? Does he really, is he really going to get a fair trial? You know? I mean... It, 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 what are the odds of that actually happening? I don't think. I don't think. Right, I don't. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think so. I don't think it should yeah. happen. I yeah. Mean, I there's a lot of people who think he should be that the state of New York should go after him, or that, that he should be charged after he gets out. I, I, I just. I, I, I do think that there should be, if, if he was impeached, or you know, if he loses the election, whichever comes first. Uh, if, if that's the route they decide to go or whatever based on this stuff. And I'm not saying they should or they shouldn't. I'm, I'm not making any judgment anyway. But I, I just kind of feel like if we go down that route of impeachment um, or let's say he's defeating the election, I just kind of think we should take a, a, an almost Nixon forward approach where it's like, 
going down the road, you know? We said we, we, we said we were going to take a political stance, and I feel like we got really cool. You know, it's a serious piece of that. Here's the ironic thing about, and the reason why I ask you the question, are we better off with the Mueller report than we were before? So we think there's meddling by the Russians in our election, right? And the purpose of that. We know. There's evidence of that. We no, know. No, I meant at the time okay. yeah. the investigation was started, it was because we thought there was meddling by the Russians okay. in, our, in our elections. And their intent in that, we thought, and we've learned, was to create political discord in the country to meddle with those elections. Um, the Mueller report, right, didn't solve that underlying political discord, all right, political chaos well, that's i mean it's it's it, it's just ironic to me i'm not saying it's right or wrong it's it's political discord meddling investigation there's no crime there with the meddling as far as the trump campaign is concerned and now more discord well no and 15 new felons that didn't exist before the investigation started but what you're hitting on is that we have learned they have shown it has been proven uh, from the evidence, it will not prove it. There's been a trial, but um, Russians did interfere in our elections. Yeah, I guess I. What are we gonna do? That. But what are we gonna do about that? What a foreign power yeah. interfered in our elections. I mean, I, what is the president of the United States gonna do about that? I didn't need a, a special prosecutor to tell me that. that I mean, I, I thought, I, I assumed there was meddling in the election. Well, that's like we meddle in other people's elections. So we, so like, we, I think the U.S. meddles in every election. So do we just let that go? Do no, we just not, let it go? No, I don't think we should let it go. I think I, I, what I'm, where I don't think we're better off because of this is, it, is even if you look at the president, what it says about the president and everything else, how do we get to the point where our national security is so vulnerable? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, where, how have we gotten to the point that people can come in through Facebook, through Twitter, and sow this kind of discord amongst Americans? You know, and, and use it against us and turn it against us. And well, th- let's not be. I, I, I think we need to be clear here. The Russians didn't sow discord. There's already discord. True. They may have taken advantage of what's already there yeah. um, and tried to sort of put a spotlight on some things that's already there. We, we have issues that we're not really dealing with. Yeah, and I think we've. But, you know, to be fair, that's, that's what we've done in other countries. You go in and you. You, you incite, I'm staying far away from that. You incite violence, <laughs> you know, you, you incite the other side to, you know, come out. I mean, so I, I, I think, yes, I mean, are, are, did they do anything that our country hasn't done? No, of course not. But uh, should we be concerned about it? Yes, absolutely. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? I, and I think, well, I'll let you finish. Well, no, I mean, I, I'm not sure that I want to know. Oh, I don't want a public. Why do we want to tell I said, I, I assume the plan. problem and I assume a solution yeah. will come from actions I don't know about. And whether or not know it was about. a Mueller report, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, I don't. That's what I meant when I said I don't need a special prosecutor to say there was meddling and and it's serious. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, anyone that cares about most people that care about the Mueller report really didn't care about the Russian meddling, as evidenced by the main focus now being that meddling was found, but Trump campaign wasn't involved. <laughs> It's all about obstruction now, right? So, I mean, that shows really, I think, to most people, it really is political. And um, now that there's no Trump conspiracy with the Russians, 
the Mueller report's key finding is on obstruction. I mean, that's what that's most of what I'm hearing from people. My big takeaway that people should have, because we only have 30 seconds left, I know you thought this would last an eternity, <laughs> or in the last 30 seconds, that I think is, just shut the hell up when the FBI or any kind of law enforcement will talk to you. It's hey. really that simple. Yes, people, if there's, if there's anything that they can take away from this discussion, um, if an agent comes to your doorstep, you do not have to talk to them. You do not have to talk to them. She just so get a lawyer. Obstruction. No, you are, you are, you have the right to an attorney. Um, and I think a lot of people are intimidated when they show up. You have a right to an attorney. So call your, just say, can I have your card? I'll call you back when I talk to my attorney. When they come to talk to you or execute a search warrant, it's not a, a, a subpoena to appear. You're not being put in front of a grand jury. It's not a court order saying, testify now. And shut up. And you're not going to talk your way out of it. I know. That's right. You're not going to talk your way out of it. Not right away. talk your way into it. <laughs> Definitely talk your way into it. Not going to talk your way out of it. Yeah. You're now listening to Manisa Sinha from University of Connecticut. Standing uh, in the State of the Union and the ways in which an overwhelming majority of the Senate GOP has basically given him a blank check uh, to do anything he wants. And uh, Professor Sinha, if you could talk about the significance of Mitt Romney uh, voting against his party. He was the first um, senator to do so uh, in an impeachment trial. I do think that Mitt Romney is a true profile in courage. Uh, Mike Pence and the Republicans have been hailing a corrupt Republican senator from the 19th century who was bribed into acquitting Johnson as a profile in courage. Uh, but really, it was Mitt Romney. Um, I do not agree with Senator Romney's politics. As a resident of Massachusetts, I regularly voted against him, even though he was very popular. Uh, and I certainly voted against him uh, when he was running against Barack Obama in 2012. But his speech yesterday struck me as historic, um, both in the ways in which he evoked his oath of office uh, to the Constitution, uh, but also the ways in which he evoked his Mormon faith, uh, his religiosity, religiosity um, as, uh, as moving him to do the right thing. As a historian of abolition, I also uh, appreciated that. I, I do think that Mitt Romney uh, will be looked on very kindly by history, and I think it is mind-boggling that Trump called him a democratic asset. I mean, this man was the Republican presidential candidate in 2012. Uh, it just goes to show how much of its political and moral worrying the current GOP uh, and its leader, uh, Trump, in the White House has lost. 
I'd like to turn to a contrast to Senator um, Romney, and that's Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska speaking on the Senate floor earlier this week. She called Trump's behavior shameful, but said she vote to acquit him. The president's behavior was shameful and wrong. His personal interests do not take precedence over those of this great nation. The president has the responsibility to uphold the integrity and the honor of the office, not just for himself, but for all future presidents. Degrading the office by actions or even name calling weakens it for future presidents and it weakens our country. The response to the president's behavior is not to disenfranchise nearly 63 million Americans and remove him from the ballot. The House could have pursued censure and not immediately jumped to the remedy of last resort. I cannot vote to convict. So that's Alaska Republican Senator Murkowski. Uh, in the midst of this trial, the questions were, what would Murkowski, uh, Senator Collins of Maine, Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, um, Romney was pretty clear from the beginning how he felt due. Uh, Manisha Sinha, professor of American history, University of Connecticut, uh, respond to what she says and how the Republicans uh, made this uh, decision to acquit. I thought Professor Murkowski's decision to vote against witnesses and evidence and also to eventually uh, acquit Trump uh, was deeply disappointing. Um, she had been very courageous in voting against the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, one of the few Republicans who had the gumption uh, to do that. Uh, so one was expecting better things from her. And her uh, statement afterwards saying that Congress had failed was actually uh, somewhat um, uh, laughable because, in fact, she and the Senate GOP had failed in this entire process. So I was deeply disappointed by Senator Murkowski. Uh, I do know that Mitch McConnell, as the Senate Majority Leader, uh, wields a lot of power. Uh, he also has uh, a lot of monies that go into the re-election campaigns of the senators. Um, they are also, we hear from an op-ed by Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio, uh, extremely fearful of Trump. Now, that really is a step towards authoritarianism. When you start fearing the great leader, when you do not act on your principles, when you do not act as a senator of the United States, following the rules and procedures of democratic governance, uh, I think that is a very scary time for American democracy. Well, Professor, Professor Sinha, I mean, you, you're right about that because you think of what uh, uh, President Trump's response was uh, to Senator Romney. I mean, within hours, he uh, posted a video on Twitter calling him uh, a secret democratic asset. Exactly. Uh, Trump is known to go after his uh, enemies, even his friends who disagree with him. Uh, and what's scary is that people start getting death threats. Uh, 
uh, Representative Schiff has been the target of credible death threats. Uh, this should not be happening in a country that is governed by the rule of law and by democratic norms. Uh, we are not going to slip into 1930s Germany uh, where uh, people are being intimidated by words and then by violence. Uh, I think we are not there yet, but uh, we are certainly witnessing um, the kinds of authoritarian behavior and words that was unthinkable in the United States in its recent past uh, that you see amongst tin pot dictators all over the world. I mean, it, Murkowski's path to the Senate was quite astounding. She actually run, won uh, in Alaska on a write-in. She lost the Republican primary, and she won as a write-in running against a Republican and Democrat. Um, but I want to turn now to the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, speaking to Fox News Wednesday. The most aggressive uh, thing you can do to any president is to try to impeach them. And they did it on a party-line vote. And uh, you could best describe it as Trump derangement syndrome. In other words, whatever he's for, they are just uh, have a Pavlovian negative response to it almost uh, immediately. This is a thoroughly political maneuver. If it was, it was stupid. It backfired. The president's got the best numbers he's had since he's been in office. Uh, my members who are in tough races are all looking at better numbers than they were before impeachment started. So if this was all about uh, the November election, it seems to me we can conclude, at least in the short term here, this was a colossal political mistake. So let's talk about the role of Mitch McConnell, who proudly said he would not be um, uh, an impartial juror, that he would coordinate everything with the White House, when there were many who were saying maybe the Republicans will break ranks and ultimately call for um, witnesses. Many others said, no, McConnell's not going to lose control of his Republican majority. Um, if you could comment, Professor Senghan, on both the power and the role of the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, and also of Chief Roberts, the Chief Justice of the United States, who presided over the impeachment trial. So starting with McConnell, I think here is a Senate majority leader who has completely broken the Senate. He began with blocking the nomination of Merrick Garland, and now he behaves in such a, a venal and such a uh, unprincipled uh, partisan manner. Uh, in fact, it's somewhat laughable that they keep calling this a partisan impeachment. Uh, there's nothing more partisan than the way in which Mitch McConnell has presided over the Senate. Uh, he and his fellow senator from Kentucky are doing great damage to that great state. Uh, I can say that they follow in the footsteps of Garrett Davis, the representative and later senator from Kentucky, who was uh, a Johnson acolyte and a complete racist. Uh, I do hope that they don't continue on this path, but it's quite likely that Mitch McConnell would be pretty shameless in putting forward the agenda of the Republican Party, no matter the damage that it does to the Senate, to our democratic institutions, to the rule of law. Uh, it is quite clear that they want uh, Trump to be vindicated uh, as their party candidate uh, under any circumstances. Uh, and Mitch McConnell would be the first one to defend Donald Trump if indeed he shot someone on Fifth Avenue. Uh, going on to 
um, Senator, uh, sorry, Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts simply presided over this trial. Uh, the best thing that he did was not to read uh, Senator Rand Paul's question that out of the whistleblower that did not deter Senator Paul, who calls himself a libertarian, but really has behaved like an authoritarian. Uh, he uh, read out the whistleblower's name uh, in his speech. Now, there was some talk that the Democrats, uh, the House managers, would indeed go to, um, to Chief Justice Roberts and ask him to intervene and allow for witnesses and evidence to come into the impeachment trial. Uh, that did not happen, and I suspect that it did not happen because they sounded him out, uh, and he made it quite clear that he would not intervene. And instead of embarrassing him publicly by making that motion, they decided to just let it go. Now, here are Democrats uh, upholding the integrity and the independence of the federal judiciary of the Supreme Court of Chief Justice Roberts in not going down that route, as was suggested by Senator Elizabeth Warren's question. And there are the Republicans willing to tear down anything, anything standing in their way, as long as they can get Trump re-elected. Well, uh, Professor Sinha, very quickly before we conclude, if you could talk about what you believe the longer-term uh, effects of this uh, drawn-out uh, uh, impeachment trial will be uh, on the American public, and in particular on Trump's supporters. Just prior to the Senate vote on Wednesday, uh, a Gallup poll found that Trump's job approval rating was at 49%, which is the highest it's been since he took office. Well, you know, polls come and go, and it would be interesting to see who conducted the poll and how it was conducted. As a historian, uh, I, I tend to take all these things with a pinch of salt, and it's just literally a snapshot in time. All the polls predicted that Trump would be defeated, and in fact, he ends up winning the Electoral College. Um, I disagree with Senator McConnell. I think Trump will be damaged goods, that this impeachment, the ongoing investigation, the Bolton revelations, as they come out, will eventually swing the pendulum uh, against Trump. I don't think this is good for Trump at all. I think the entire impeachment process uh, revealed uh, not just the corruption that everyone knows about, not just uh, uh, you know the kind of behavior that demeans his office that everyone knows about, but it revealed a person who was willing to sacrifice national interests and security, something that the Republicans actually used to value. Um, for personal gain. Uh, this is not even uh, for his private enrichment. You know, he's been flouting the emoluments clause. He and his family have been flouting the emolument clause of the Constitution by personally enriching themselves uh, after his election to the presidency. Uh, but this is actually even worse than that kind of crude corruption. This is literally playing uh, a game with the country's security, with the country's democracy. Uh, and that, I think, is extremely troubling. Uh, I, I, I think that that will eventually penetrate. Um, you know, the Republicans today remind me a lot of the Democrats in the 1850s. And remember, you have to simply flip uh, parties' ideological roles when you talk about the 19th century 
administration because the Republican Party was the liberal progressive party of anti-slavery and big government, and the Democratic Party had become the party of slavery, white supremacy, and states' rights. Uh, you know, they just... Uh, voted along partisan lines, they voted egregious laws protecting slavery uh, because they had a foolproof majority in uh, Congress and many times they had the, uh, in fact most of the times they had the presidency. Uh, and then of course they went down to a deep defeat uh, and they were able eventually to reinvent themselves in the progressive era, the New Deal era, uh, and finally with civil rights. Uh, will the current GOP be able to do that? I doubt it. I think they have adopted a strategy of sinking and swimming with Trump. Let us see how far that gets them. We want to thank you so much for being with us. Manisha Sinha, professor of American history at the University of Connecticut, fellow at Radcliffe Institute at Harvard University, speaking to us from the Harvard Kennedy School, author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, where she goes into the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson. She wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times headline, Donald Trump, Meet Your Precursor. We'll link to that at democracynow.org. This is Democracy Now! When we come back, we go to Iowa. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Ermin Sheikh. Democratic officials in Iowa are continuing to release official results from Monday's caucus. Senator Bernie Sanders and former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg are now in a virtual tie with 97% of precincts reporting. Sanders maintains a lead in the popular vote, but Buttigieg has a slight advantage in what's known as the state delegate equivalent race. Buttigieg has 26.2% of state delegate equivalents, while Sanders has 26.1%. The New York Times is now predicting Sanders has a greater chance of winning overall in part of the Vermont senator's overwhelming strength in satellite caucuses in Iowa and around the country. And world. Democratic officials have attributed the chaos in Iowa to a newly created app built by a little-known firm called Shadow, which has ties to the Democratic establishment as well as the Pete Buttigieg campaign. Democratic leaders in Iowa are also facing widespread criticism over its slow release of results and in some cases for issuing incorrect results. In one case, Black Hawk County, delegates for Bernie Sanders were mistakenly given to Deval Patrick 
We go now to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where we're joined by Chris Schwartz. He's the chair of the Black Hawk County Board of Supervisors, the state co-chair for Bernie 2020. He's also the state director of Americans for Democratic Action. Chris Schwartz, welcome to Democracy Now! Why don't you just, this is such a confusing story about what's taking place in Iowa. Still so unclear, so much secrecy. Maybe the word shadow is appropriate here. Take us through what has taken place so far in Iowa. Yeah, thank, thank you, Amy. It's, it's an honor to be here with the Democracy Now! here today. And so, uh, caucus nights, things seem to be going relatively smoothly in my very diverse precinct in Waterloo, which is the most diverse city uh, in, in the state of Iowa. We were in and out of our caucus site in less than an hour and left feeling you know, good, like, hey, this thing ran smoothly, we're gonna know results tonight. And then the hours just went on and on and on and didn't have a sense of what was going on, then finding out that the app wasn't working for reporting and then they didn't have the backup phone lines you know, operating uh, with enough people. And we were finding out that precinct chairs were all volunteers who did a pretty good job of of running their sites, we're just waiting on hold for for hours and hours and hours, had you and finally giving up. Before and, and going the to day bed. of the caucus, Chris, had you practiced? Had you ever seen this app? Uh, had people tried to put some information in to see if it would register? No, I, I had never seen the app. Um, only people that were uh, precinct chairs running it had access, and it's my understanding that uh, most of them just saw just the just the weekend before. Some of them were trying to download the app at the actual caucus site that night, and so there had not been enough of a, of a, a practice run. Well, Chris, it seems extraordinary, given the stakes in this election, that uh, Democrats would take a risk of this sort by trying an app that hadn't even been tested, and you say that only precinct chairs uh, uh, saw it, and that too just the weekend before. Yeah, you know, it was uh, a pretty, pretty remarkable thing, um, and, and you know, sometimes you, you're, you're recruiting precinct chairs up to the last minute to run these caucus sites. So to think that they could be, you know, trained on this this new technology, uh, there there really should have been some other kind of dry run uh, to see if that was a route that was worthy of, of going for the Iowa caucuses. So keep going. Uh, so the, the hours drag out, yes. the app doesn't work. How do you get the Black Hawk um, County uh, caucus information yes. uh, to Central Command or yeah, whoever so, so, it is that's So the hours are going on. It was, it was about 2 o'clock on Tuesday. I'd gotten an email from um, our county party uh, secretary uh, just letting me know that, that Sanders won in a, in a big, sizable margin in Blackhawk County, and he knew that I would want to have that information. About an hour later, I went down to our county party office to volunteer and help stuff the envelopes of materials that get sent on to the Iowa Democratic Party in Des Moines, at which point I was shown um, the breakdown of what the first uh, round of voting and what the final delegate count would be for our county convention, um, at which point it showed you know, a good almost you know, 1,000 vote lead in that first round uh, for Senator Sanders, something that increased when you went even to the second round of, of viability. And so this was at about 2 o'clock that day. I knew what was going on, um, that we had won Blackhawk County really big, but it still wasn't included in that first initial round of 64% of precincts that was released. And I was getting concerned. Nobody in our county party understood why those numbers weren't included. Because you had reported And so finally that. that evening, I reached out to to Troy Price, the, the state chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, and, and asked, you know, what is the process that this needs to go through to get 
to get released, you know, trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, um, trying to understand what their process was they're going through. And I just heard crickets. I heard nothing back when he's usually been very responsive to me on things. And so finally the next day I reached out again. I said, hey, you know, I'm still waiting on this stuff. And then I was just like, was feeling guilty that I knew the results of our county, but the constituents I represented in it, the volunteers of all these different campaigns, the volunteers that ran these caucus sites and worked really hard to do it, all the people that came in from across the country to get out the vote. We had 40 people staying at our house uh, that we can do and get out the vote efforts. And these people had a right to know what the results of their their work was. And so we tweeted it out. Um, I was actually driving, so my fiance Logan uh, was handling my phone, and I just told him what to tweet out and put the results out there on Twitter and Facebook. Apparently just at the same time that the Iowa Democratic Party was releasing another round of results um, to find out that they had given all these Bernie Sanders delegates in Black Hawk County uh, to Deval Patrick. Uh, Deval Patrick, and it shouldn't even come as a surprise to Deval Patrick himself, uh, didn't have any support uh, in Black Hawk County that evening. And so we're just getting, finding out that as, as we're putting out these results, they're putting out results that are totally contrary. And I think it forced them to immediately walk back with the, what they had put out. So to be clear. So I really question that, to be you know, clear, it's taken Chris, so long to get these results out, yet they release them, and then they still get it wrong. You know, what what is going on? What is the process? Nobody's being told this. I'm a member of the Democratic Party. I'm an elected official in the state. I still can't even get my answers, you know, answered. So to be clear, Chris, I mean, we uh, got this information because you posted it. Uh, Black Hawk County, um, Black Hawk County caucus results. Sanders, 2,149 votes. That's 155 county delegates. Buttigieg, 1,578 votes. That's 111 county delegates, so that's like a 44 um, uh, county delegate lead for Sanders. And you've given it to them early. It's not that they didn't have yours, that you weren't able to get through. When you finally got through, you then saw results after results posted by the Iowa Democratic Party. But Black um, uh, Hawk County was not included, and then you saw it was counted as the former governor of uh, Massachusetts, Deval Patrick's votes. Yeah, at first things were not being included, and then when they finally were included, um, they had all these precincts going to uh, Deval Patrick, which, which just didn't make any sense. You know, like I said, my caucus was done in under an hour, um, and it took almost 48 hours for the uh, Iowa Democratic Party to finally report those results correctly. Now, in our lead, we talked about a, a number of places now predicting that actually Bernie Sanders, I mean, it's a virtual tie between him and Buttigieg now, but um, could pull ahead because of the satellite caucuses. Now, if you could explain, this is such an obscure pro process that people in this country, I don't think you yes. even understand, maybe even in Iowa. Satellite caucuses take place in Iowa, in the United States, and outside around the world for the Iowa caucus? Yes. So the satellite caucuses were a new thing this year, um, one of the reforms to try and make the caucuses more accessible, because as most people looking at this, the caucus is, there's a, there's a hurdle to accessibility, whether you're, you're disabled or a working person uh, who can't get off work to, to come out and participate for a one hour, two hour, three hour long process. And so they first proposed doing a virtual caucus, that was shut down, and so they decided to do these satellite caucuses that were geared held in union halls, there were some satellite caucuses that were geared um, for, for, for persons with disabilities, there were satellite caucuses that were uh, Spanish language, 
And it's my understanding that we're waiting on a lot of them in the, that were located in the first congressional district in Eastern Iowa. Uh, and Bernie Sanders was very strong at all of those. Um, I'm hearing that uh, Pete Buttigieg was not viable at, at a number Jeez. of those satellite caucus sites. So I think that Jeez. it's going to be very interesting to see uh, if that tips the scales here um, uh, when we get those results. But 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 what clear is clear to me is that uh, more Iowans came out and supported Bernie Sanders on caucus night. And so if there's such difficulty figuring out the accuracy of the delegates and what the state delegate equivalents are and what that you know proper equation is, then let's just go with the popular vote. And that just clearly shows that Bernie Sanders had the most amount of support in Iowa on caucus night. Uh, and Chris, could you explain before we conclude, why is it that a new app was introduced in the first place? I mean, were there uh, difficulties or problems with the app that was used uh, during the Iowa caucus in, in 2016? What was the justification given for the introduction of an app so, so that was not tested? Yes, um, it's a very good question. So there was, there was no app used in, in 2016. Um, I was someone who ran my caucus site as the precinct chair in 2016. And we just phoned in our results. Uh, there were enough people answering the phone that night. I got through right away and really had, had no issues. And, and so that's why, you know, it was very close that night. And that's, I believe, it went, you know, late into night because it was coming down so close between uh, Senator Sanders and, and Secretary Clinton. Uh, but, but we still knew it uh, with, within hours of the end of the, of the caucus site because we were using uh, the old standard system of of phoning in your results and then dropping off your packet at your county party headquarters and then that's all sent to Des Moines so that the record is there. And I think this, you know, just don't understand why, um, if the app wasn't working, why we didn't have enough people operating those phone systems. I'm looking at a piece in The Intercept. A person with knowledge of the company's culture, talking about Shadow, the app creator, who asked to remain anonymous for fear of reprisal. Shared communication showing top officials at the company regularly expressed hostility to Senator Bernie Sanders supporters. McGowan is married to Michael Halley. Now, McGowan is the head of uh, Acronym, which owns Shadow, and McGowan, Tara McGowan, is married to Michael Hall or Halley, H-A-L-L-E, a senior strategist with the Buttigieg campaign. There's no evidence any preference of candidates had any effect on the coding issue that's stalling the Iowa results. But um, as we wrap up, Chris, if you can talk about the significance of all of this, and you know, this has certainly opened the discussion again, whether Iowa should be first. You talked about Black Hawk County and Waterloo being the most diverse area of Iowa, but the fact is Iowa and New Hampshire, two of the whitest states in the country, are determining so much of, well, who could be president in 2021? Yeah, well, I would, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, information developing about, about the app. That, that, that is still unclear. One, one thing that is clear to me is that uh, the decision wasn't made by the entire uh, state central committee of the Democratic Party, and those are the, the folks that the party elects to represent us and decide the, the direction of the state party. I guess it was a decision of an of a operations subcommittee, and even folks on the state central committee that were questioning uh, the use of this app, whether it was secure, and whether we had the proper backups in place, um, I'm being told by those state central committee members that those voices were, were quelled. Um, I, I do certainly think, I mean, there's, there are pluses and minuses of, of the Iowa caucus. You know, uh, a plus of being in a small state like Iowa is that the community organizing still matters in this versus it just being a big media market game. But 
Um, if, it, if I could wave my magic wand, I would probably just have us do uh, a primary all on the same day as Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. And then you've got a really great cross-section of America. You have rural states, uh, you have more urban areas, you have much more, much more uh, diversity that reflects uh, the melting pot that is America. Uh, all in states that are where community organizing and mobilization would, would still matter. And so that's what, that would be what I would tell the, tell the DNC, let's move to a, a primary that's held on those four states all on the same day uh, when, when this is up next. I think also people would not be aware in the country that Bernie Sanders, I mean, now in a virtual tie with Buttigieg, they're 0.1% apart on the delegate equivalence, as you talk about it in Iowa. Um, but thousands of popular votes ahead, right? At this point, 2,500? Absolutely. So it is very clear that, that Bernie Sanders had the, the most support of Iowans on caucus night. And so I think that's what people should be looking at around the country, is that this movement came out here in Iowa, in my own precinct. Um, it was very, very diverse support uh, of young black and brown and queer and straight people coming together to support Sanders. And that's what our coalition looks like all across this country. And I believe there's a movement that is ready to elect Sanders president uh, that is going to do, have really great momentum going off of these, these early victories in Iowa, and I predict we're going to do very well in New Hampshire on Tuesday. Chris Schwartz, I want to thank you for being with us, chair of the Black Hawk County Board of Supervisors, the state co-chair for Bernie 2020, as well as state director of Americans for Democratic Action, speaking us to us from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. This is Democracy Now! When we come back, what has happened to hundreds of Salvadorans who were deported from the United States. A new report is out. Um, we're going to be talking about that tomorrow. But today, we're going to talk about the National Archives. You heard about um, the changing of the photographs of the 2017 March, um, Women's March. Well, now there's a new star story. What else is being erased? Um, for example, ICE records. Stay with us. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you say black America. And you say young America. Another day in America. Yeah, it's hard to be the American me. If this ain't home, then where can I be? The answer's no when they ask or say, can you see? Especially when the lawyer asks, oh, hey, can you plead? I was born in the world without innocence. Cause we all look guilty in them tenements. Living life on the edge and it's been intense. The hands of hate plan of fate, they've been winning since. Graduated and my moms couldn't be prouder. And my soul is the spirit of Khalif Browder. And that was 35 years back. When the song cried, couldn't hold them tears back. The promised land, tell me where's that? I've been alive 51, been the same amount of years black. Wow. Look at lying.
Thanks for your time this morning. Sure, anytime. We'll finish out our program asking your thoughts on yesterday's Senate vote acquitting the president on the articles of impeachment. Here's how you can call us and let us know your thoughts, Republicans. 202-748-8001. Democrats, 202-748-8000. And Independents, 202-748-8002. And you can text us your thoughts at 202 202- 748-8003. It was earlier this morning that the president, addressing the national prayer breakfast, used the occasion to talk about the impeachment vote and those efforts to remove him from office. My family, our great country, and your president have been put through a terrible ordeal by some very dishonest and corrupt people. Huh. They have done everything possible to destroy us and by so doing very badly hurt our nation. They know what they are doing is wrong, but they put themselves far ahead of our great country. Wow. Weeks ago and again yesterday, courageous Republican politicians and leaders had the wisdom, fortitude, and strength to do what everyone knows was right. I don't like people who use their faith as justification for doing what they know is wrong. Nor do I like people who say, I pray for you, when they know that that's not so. So many people have been hurt, and we can't let that go on. And I'll be discussing that a little bit later at the White House. Wow. 
Washington Journal continues. Wow. The president will make a statement about the impeachment inquiry and the vote that took place yesterday. That is expected at 12 noon today. And if you want to watch it, you can do so at C-SPAN 2. You can watch for it and monitor it at cspan.org and listen to it on our C-SPAN radio app. Again, uh, the president acquitted in uh, the two articles of impeachment. Uh, you can talk about that, the vote, the influence of Senator Mitt Romney, if you wish. All those up for discussion, 202-748-8001 for Republicans, 202-748-8000 for Democrats and Independents, 202-748-8002. Uh, Deanna starts us off in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Democrats lying, go ahead. Yes. Um, as I've said many times before, I wrote, as I wrote in a very long letter to Nancy Pelosi, I agree 100% with what she and her colleagues did. I believe that if you see something wrong, you should do something about it. If Mr. Trump had worked in the wonderful company that I worked for, and he performed in his job the way that he has, um, he would have been out before his 90-day probation was over. Unfortunately, I think that we have the best white-collar criminal in the world ever as our president of the United States, and it is a shame that some of those people have, uh, the Republicans have uh, given up their moral courage to support this man. We are in it's if more people would have stood up when Hitler was in Nazi Germany, the Holocaust might not have happened. Let's go to Brian in Colorado Springs, Colorado, Republican line. Yeah, good morning, Pedro. Um, I'd like to uh, congratulate the Democrats on actually pulling off one of the biggest um, election frauds in American history. Um, they not only went after Donald Trump, but they also went after Bernie Sanders by keeping him off the campaign trail during, you know, one of the most important, you know, uh, uh, caucuses uh, in, in starting off the uh, election season. Um, I just can't decide on who's who's dupe. Um, you know, I hate to believe that sturdy Bernie Sanders is going to get ripped off again in another election. But if they could do it to Bernie, they could do it to Donald Trump, too. Marcus, so, yeah, from, I think this was a Marcus from Washington State, Independent Line. Good morning. Yes, good morning. Um, independent, uh, looks like tit for task on that whole acquittal thing. Meaning One side, what? Two sides. What do you mean by that? It means like the... It didn't seem fair to me. I look on both sides. Neither side seemed fair. They didn't want to um, put in the witnesses or any of that. They're arguing. They don't want to, didn't want to work the books right or whatever. It's hard to tell. What did you think of the end result? Well, I'm skeptical. Very skeptical. Why so? And that's about all, all I have to say. Why, but why, why are you skeptical? Oh, because I don't know which ones to believe, to be honest with you. Chantilly, Virginia. John is next. Democrats line. Hi. Good morning, General. Thank you for taking my calls. First of all, I'm very disappointed sometimes when people call in and they attack you, Pedro. You're too polite to 
to answer their question. I know some of the Republicans, they, if they don't want to hear what you need to say, they will attack you. That, but that's not what I call. I will say this, Pedro. Uh, the Senator Susan Collins said that the president he was wrong and he did something wrong and he, there was no reason that we should impeach him. Next minute, the president responded and he said, I'm not a guilty and I wasn't doing anything wrong. But here's the point, uh, Pedro, that if I do a crime and seven people are witnesses and the judge says, uh, my lawyer says, that, you know, no, we don't need the witnesses. He's not guilty. That in itself is a crime. But, but America needs to understand one thing that we don't know what we have until we lose everything. We have the greatest nation and greatest justice in this country. But the problem is we're, we're petty. Now that the gentleman is calling and attacking, this morning the president, he attacked uh, uh, Mitt Romney, his faith, and he said he's not doing what he did because he's religion, because he did it because he doesn't like me. Okay. It doesn't matter how you look at it. This country, people need to understand. Okay, uh, John, that's John, uh, that's John in uh, Chantilly, Virginia, Republican line from Delaware, Frank in Felton, Delaware. Hi. Hey, Daddy, I just wanted to uh, reply about what I was listening to with business. I don't understand why folks can't understand if corporations and businesses are benefited, then employees get hired, the government can tax the employees to pay for government to provide service from the military to keep us safe and stuff like that. Okay, we're on to the Senate impeachment vote. What did you think about the events of yesterday? Well, it's obvious that um, it was right down political lines. Uh, we, I don't think we have uh, a proper, uh, very good understanding for our country. Did you agree should, with the acquittal? Yeah, well, I think the uh, Republicans and Democrats should be working towards the benefit of the country, towards the benefit of people, instead of trying to do things according to their own mind. Hey, I want this, I want that. The other side says, I want this, I want that. Sure, but to the, but to the acquittal, did you agree with the acquittal? I think our country is going to be benefited much more because of it. You know, everybody has an ability to work today that wants to work, unlike the previous administration. They had their plans and, and made people uh, receive unemployment benefits. Okay. okay, we'll go on to Vaughn in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, independent line. Hi. Good morning, Pedro, old buddy. Um, I just have a couple of little quick points to make here for you concerning the acquittal yesterday. I. I'm really relieved that it's over. I'm sure the rest of the country is also because I felt like I was on trial. And the reason I'm saying it is because after this started in the House, the claim from the Democrats was the House Republicans were going to be on trial and they had to do the right thing according to the Democratic mantra. Then it got flipped over to the Senate and then the Senate Republicans were on trial. And then the President's counsel was on trial because they were supposedly covering things up. And then they were bringing in Vice President Pence and all the people that were in the loop. They were all on trial. And the fact of the matter is that the people that are really on trial, according to the Democrats, are the deplorables. And who's next? I guess the general public will be next if something doesn't go their way. How did you draw that conclusion? How did you, how did you draw that conclusion? What conclusion of that? That, that the general public is on trial? Well, that because that, that you you mentioned the deplorables and the general public, but how did you call draw that conclusion from everything you said before? 
First, it started off with Trump and uh, he's saying how deplorable the results was and he couldn't believe that people would use ABCDFG to prove their point and like he said, he'll deal with it in the White House. And I'm like, is that is not a sure sign of a narcissist? Um individual that feel I didn't do nothing wrong. You know, and so what 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 is really going on? Yeah, he, he, that would sound like a threat. You know, that sound like a threat. And he was at a prayer breakfast. You see? Um, Um, that itself is they cheating with that so it is just crazy the way this society is society is I I just tell you it's just just too much and and it just shows you 
just how corrupt. It's just corruption, period. And I guess we already know it's corruption. And and that's why we have to really, really keep our focus on God. But don't don't be sleep. You know, don't be sleep, y'all. Be conscious. You know, stay alert. Because things are really just, it's just crazy. The things that I'm seeing, the things that I'm hearing, um, especially how they're saying the tax cuts, this and that. Well, from what you gathered earlier, the tax cuts are just for corporation. Like they say, 1.1% interest that they can borrow from the country and do this and that for infrastructures. Didn't they mention about the immigrants? Yeah. Modern-day slavery, that's what they're saying in so many words. A lot of immigrants to come over because you know they're going to work hard and we can pay less. I just, it's like, Jesus, where are you? Y'all sure? <laughs> it really makes you wonder, but I'm going to holler at you guys later. I just want y'all to just, I just want to document, like the the young man said about the archives. We have to document stuff now. If we don't keep our own history and make our own history, nobody won't even know what's going on. You only can go with what you're hearing, and half the stuff we're hearing is false, is deceptive, okay?